Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Bloomberg is now on your dashboard. With Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, it gives you access to every Bloomberg podcast, live audio feeds from Bloomberg Radio, print stories from Bloomberg News in audio form, and the latest headlines at the click of a button with Bloomberg News Now. It's free with the latest version of the Bloomberg Business app. That's the Bloomberg Business app. Get it on your phone in the Apple App Store or on Google Play. Just download the app, connect your phone to your car, and get started. And it's all presented by our sponsor, Interactive Brokers. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, let's go down to Washington, D.C., only because we have to. I mean, that's where it's all happening. Nathan Dean joins us. He's a senior policy analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence and Jordan Fabian, White House reporter with uh, Bloomberg News. Um, Nathan, I just want to start with you. Are you going to shut down our government again? What's going on down, down there? So, you know, I, I may be a little bit out of consensus on this. I'm, we're still telling folks 40% chance of a shutdown, unless you have this, like, temporary shutdown that bleeds in, over to the weekend. The reason being is is that, you know, there, there are so many different ideas that are being thrown around by House Republicans, by the Senate, by Ukraine and Israel and so forth, and none of these political cakes are baked. And, you know, there's really no strategy of why you would have a shutdown at this point other than just we want to shut it down. And so with Speaker Johnson still in, you know, what you'd call the, the infancy of his speakership. And obviously he made some statements over the weekend that he's seeking for more time as he does his laddered CR idea and so forth. We're telling folks, you know, he may be able to get that. So don't be surprised if this goes in the December 15th or even January, February. But ultimately what people should know as they approach it from the market perspective is that there really isn't all that impact outside of just trying to just keep your eye on it. Even the defense contractors aren't, uh, all that exposed. I mean, we really would have to see a two-month shutdown, if not longer, for those economic impacts to be bleeding into the market. So unfortunately for a lot of the folks just watching, it's one of those political popcorn watch uh, events again. <laughs> All right. So um, the White House has said that Johnson's plan would only lead to future shutdowns, and President Biden could issue a formal, formal veto, veto threat today. Jordan Fabian, you cover the White House for us. What do we expect um, from President Biden, and what's the, what are their problems with this plan? I think we could see a veto threat today or something a little short of that, which is uh, basically an advisor's recommendation that he not sign it. It's these Washington terms of craft, but uh, we'll be watching closely to see what they say. Look, the White House is frustrated uh, with this dragged out process that you know they thought should have been resolved with a debt ceiling agreement back in the spring, which set spending levels. Uh, Republicans threw that out the window. And so they're frustrated over that and the fact that there's no Ukraine aid 
uh, in this package, and the White House is getting anxious that you know, maybe this is the last bite of the apple, and so they want to exert whatever leverage they can to try to get that included, and thus you're seeing uh, these statements that are highly critical of Speaker Johnson's approach. But they would be, I mean, if, if Biden vetoes it uh, shutting down the government, then the Democrats get the blame for something that the whole country is angry with the Republicans for right now. You know, they're in a great situation because the, the country blames all of this on the other party. Do they are they do they risk that? Yeah, that's why I think Nathan raises a good point, which is that, uh, you know, I, I think you may and you raise valid points, too, which is Democrats absolutely don't want any share of the blame for a government shutdown. So uh, my suspicion is if a CR were to reach the president's desk, he would sign it and you know kick the can down the road for a couple of months and try again in January to get his priorities funded. Uh, but it's still an open question of whether this laddered CR gets through the House. There's still this faction of hell no House uh, fiscal hawk House Republicans who uh, you know don't want to take yes for an answer. And Johnson can only afford to lose three votes. That's not a lot. So uh, we'll be watching closely. There's some test votes coming up in the next 24 hours to see uh, what level of support there is for this package. So, Nathan, in, I guess in the interim, what legislation is not getting worked on? It's not getting passed. What are, what are we missing here? Well, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that are, it's more of the sector level. I mean, obviously we've talked about pot banking before. You know, there are a lot of people who'd love to see that move forward. There's really no work that's being done on it. Crypto, the NDAA, you know, there's a lot of legislation out there that needs to get done. Uh, and, you know, we're just talking about CRs. And so ultimately there's still going to be enough time to get that stuff done. But, you know, time's going to run out before we get into this election cycle where folks are just going to be more paying attention to their districts. I still think that a shutdown is coming. I I honestly do think that we're going to have a multi-week shutdown. I just think it's going to be in the beginning of next year because there will come a point in which Speaker Johnson and the Democrats just will not agree. And both sides will say, "Okay, I think politically it's best for us to just, you know, have this fight out and let's let the chips lie. But ultimately for the Republicans right now, as you recall, you know, last week they had a very bad week uh, in Virginia, where I am, in Kentucky and Ohio and so forth like that. They don't want to have that happen twice in the span of two weeks. So uh, I think right now that the this all this uncertainty is just going to get pushed into January and we'll be talking about it then. Jordan, let's talk about, you know, the the upcoming election. We're already seeing ads uh, from the Biden administration um, trying to convince Americans that his age isn't a problem, although uh, many people polled are concerned about his ability to get through another four years. Uh, you know, what's their tactic? And what do they say about, I always wonder about Kamala Harris, because if you're really worried about um, the president's age, you should be uh, doubly focused on the vice presidential candidate. Right. Well, the, the Biden campaign has a lot of money right now. They have about $91 million in cash on hand. So they're spending some money now to try and get those concerns allayed and try to lay the groundwork for uh, a broader and more aggressive pitch later next year uh, for re-election. So they're trying to address the age question. They're trying to address the Americans' concerns with the cost of living. So if you look, listen to their messaging, there's ads uh, showing Biden walking through Kiev with his sunglasses on and talking about these things in the Inflation Reduction Act that were supposed to lower prices. Um, but look, it, it's I think their best hope is not necessarily convincing Americans that you know Biden is this spry young man, but that they're going to be possibly running against 
Donald Trump, someone who's very unpopular and someone you know, who's also up there in age and has shown some propensity for gaffes and, and the like. So, uh, you know, <laughs> it's like Biden always says, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. <laughs> hey, Jordan, it, it's going to be a big week for President Biden uh, out in San Francisco. He'll be meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping. What's the White House? What's a kind of the game plan here? What's a what's the goal? Um, what would be a success? What are, what are you hearing? They want to set a floor under this U.S.-China relationship. I don't think you're going to see a bunch of major deliverables coming out of this meeting, like some sort of agreement on Taiwan or broader economic rules of the road. Those are the two, obviously, main concerns in the relationship. But you could see things like resumption of military to military communication, uh, some incremental things on climate, uh, fentanyl trafficking uh, coming out of this meeting. And, and I think, that, again, the, the, the meeting itself is almost a deliverable for President Biden, who wants to reset this relationship in a way that puts up guardrails, make sure that tensions don't escalate out of control like they did earlier this year with the spy balloon incident. So, all right, Nathan, from the perspective of just greater D.C., I mean, what's the concern level here just about U.S.-China relations? Well, I mean, first, I want my pandas back. I mean, uh, obviously, yes. we lost our pandas, <laughs> so uh, you know, and I, I'm joking there. But, you know, obviously, you know, when it comes to the U.S.-China relations, it comes down to clarity. That's what investors want is they want to know what the clarity is and what's going to happen. I mean, there's, you know, all these questions with Taiwan and so forth like that. And so I think anytime you get this type of communication between the president and the, and the premier and so forth like that, that you get this, you at least get something that you can work, work, work with. So I, I don't think Washington in particular and, you know, Jordan can correct me if I'm wrong, you know, I don't think Washington in particular has any real hopes for this meeting, but it's just something that we'd like to see so that we can see the communication, we can get information, we can get transparency, and at least have a better idea of what's happening down the road. Because if any times they're not talking, then you just get what's happening, nobody knows. Right. All right, Nathan Hager. Uh, Nathan Dean, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Nathan Dean, he's a senior policy analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, and Jordan Fabian, White House reporter with Bloomberg News, both of them down in uh, D.C. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg 
iHeartRadio.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Look at it. The stock of Boeing up 4%. Looks like they sold a bunch of aircraft uh, to the Emirates Airlines. That sounds like a good deal. Let's break that down and everything uh, aerospace with George Ferguson, senior aerospace defense and airline analyst for Bloomberg uh, Intelligence, former uh, military intelligence officer in the U.S. Army. So we thank Mr. Ferguson for his service here. George, talk to us first about this Emirates deal. The number got my attention, like a lot of billions of dollars. Yeah, no, it's a big order, right? So uh, it was about 95 airplanes, uh, 90 of them, 777s. Uh, but that 777, they already had the largest order in the book for that airplane. Uh, I mean, Emirates likes to refresh their fleet sort of every 15 years. They don't like to go much further than a 15-year-old airplane. They've been waiting for this 777 to show up, so they're adding, adding more to that backlog. I don't know that that uh, significantly boosts Boeing profit because my guess is that airplane comes out the door in the mid 2020s once it gets um certified at low rates you know at threes or fives kind of per month so but i mean every order is a great order but um that order probably takes a, a fair amount of time to fulfill um 787 was interesting to see them order as well they ordered five more not a lot they already had an order in the book for some uh, 787s they have orders in the books for 787s and a350s which, uh, you know, I see is sort of two competing airplanes, the, the Boeing and the Airbus version of that smaller long haul airplane. Typically, Emirates tries to run a, a cleaner fleet. They run a fleet of usually two types. So I'm a little surprised to see them keep that airplane on the order books. I thought they might have placed an order for 777 and rationalized that. Because um, I think that when they're done, they're going to want to go back to, again, a sort of a two-airplane fleet, and I thought it was going to be a 350-777, so that was pretty interesting to see them go back for five more 787s. Not a lot, splashy order, uh, long period of time before we deliver all those airplanes. George, walk us through the differences. You know, people who don't cover Boeing for a living may not, uh, and people who don't fly as much as Paul Sweeney might not know um, what all these aircraft are. Um, we, we, we know the 737 and the A320s, they're the narrow body, single aisle uh, aircraft that really blow to actually be a passenger on because there's no room at all. But um, is the 777, is that a bigger uh, airplane? Yeah, so, you know, since the pandemic, we saw the A380 and the 747, the big four-engine airplanes. We see them, we got to see them taken out of production. And so after those airplanes come out of production, 777 will be the largest airplane uh, in the skies. Uh, really, you know, the sizes of that 777 are starting to, actually not even starting, they're rivaling the 747. You can get 400, mid-400s kind of numbers of people on that airplane, depending on how you configure it. They're as big as the triple seven. I'm sorry. Is the triple seven as big as the 787? I thought the 787, the Dreamliner, was like the biggest one. No, sorry. 787 is smaller. 787 wow. and A350 are both smaller. A350 900 are both smaller than triple seven, uh, and they fit between that narrow body class that you seem to love so much. <laughs> you know, the 320 and the 737, mm. and that triple seven. Really, those are the most in favor airplanes right now, right there. A 300-ish seater, um, you know, kind of twin aisles, and the ranges are great on the 350 and the 787. They can get you, you know, really far around the world. 
Uh, so you could do a lot of non-stops, try to pull in the best kind of fares, you know, fares possible from those business travelers that don't want to connect anywhere. Triple Seven has pretty good range as well, uh, but that's going to be the largest airplane in the sky when uh, Seven Four Seven and A Three Eighty are gone. Nice. I want to fly that Triple Seven. Oh, where yeah. what? What are the routes? Where can I get on one of those things? Well, I think if you go to Dubai, they got a lot of them <laughs> in the fleet. If you go to Qatar, you'd find a lot of them too. United flies them. I mean, they're really, you know, they're a, a component of most of the major big full service airlines around the world. All right. The 737 MAX. It was so in the news for the bad reasons Crashes back in the day. all the time. They fixed that. Now I feel like it's the safest Whoa, plane on the planet. Sure they did. <laughs> they fixed it. It's a little, just a little software fix. Um, but the big thing is China. I mean, I got to start selling some, some of these planes to, to China. Where are we there? Yes, yeah, so nothing has been shipped into China. We keep waiting kind of eminently to see the Chinese take the airplanes that have already been built for them uh, and, you know, are awaiting sort of delivery. Boeing has been remarketing some of those airplanes. So it kind of tells you that whatever discussions they're having with the Chinese about taking those airplanes was kind of stalling. Lately, it feels like there might be a thawing up coming. I think if you're China... China pre-pandemic took a, almost 300 or about 300 narrow bodies a year. And it was something not one company could do, not just Airbus, not just Boeing. Now, post-pandemic, as they you know, have reutilized their fleets and such, they just haven't needed deliveries in that of that size. Last year, I think it was about 100 narrow bodies they took. But if the Chinese look down the road and they think they're a 300 plus narrow body delivery kind of market in the future and their comax c919 is not going to be ready to you know to backfill or in, to supplant some of that uh, airbus and boeing uh, deliveries they need to start thinking about having a better relationship with boeing because airbus won't be able to fill all of their needs plus if you're going to negotiate with airbus and you're not buying boeing airplanes you're not really in a very good negotiating uh, space, right? And so I think they need to start to thaw that relationship. We'll see how big an order comes out. These order books are long right now. They're six, seven, eight years long. So they got to start to get in the back of the queue if they want some airplanes from Boeing. How long does it take to build a triple seven plane start to finish? Like if I put my order in now, when am I getting this plane? <clears throat> Well, I mean, the challenge, like I said, is this airplane's not certified yet. We've got to get the FAA to certify it. Uh, we think it's sort of 2025-ish, right? I think there's 250, 300-ish kind of orders wow, that uh, cool. on the books right now. A bunch of them Emirates. If they, what, if they build five a month, you'd be getting 60 out the door you know, per year. We got five years of backlog. Boeing will want to increase that if they see orders build. Um, and if they, you know, if they get enough of a backlog, nobody wants to ramp up production and ramp back down production. So they like to see a couple of years or more before they, you know, start thinking about increasing those rates. But you're still talking, you know, four or five years of backlog in that airplane. And then here's my long-held opinion, which I express every time we talk about Boeing: they never should have left Seattle. Yeah, they lost their engineering chops and they left Seattle. That's just my personal opinion. Sure, hurt so, the culture. But you yeah. could argue. Yeah, it's a good you argument. could argue though they're they're now in Virginia I know. and they're close to one of their biggest customers, yeah, which is yeah, the US yeah, government. Yeah. I mean, people come out to Seattle to SeaTac. That's a great part of the world. And then you go down that highway that takes you back down to Seattle from the airport. On the left hand side of the highway, it's all Boeing, as far as the eye can see. Planes stacked up. You're listening to the tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. The tune in.
TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's talk commercial real estate. Where are we in the cycle here? Uh, Margaret McKnight joins us here. She's a partner and head of real estate portfolio solutions at Stepstone Group and NASDAQ created stock, symbol STEP to put into your Bloomberg terminal. Uh, she joins us live here in our New York studio. So Margaret, this is how I frame out questions about or discussions about commercial real estate. The Lipstick Building, Third Avenue, I'm gonna call it 54th Street or something, I don't know where it is. Iconic building, but it's Third Avenue. It's not Park Avenue, it's not Fifth Avenue. When that thing trades, is it going to be a 20% discount, a 40% discount, a 60% discount to pre-pandemic levels? How bad is it out there for commercial real estate? So the first thing I want to do is say that there's office and all other. Office is getting okay. hit by a cyclic pullback, especially the tech tenants pulling back, okay. and by secular problems because of work from home. So it is materially worse than any other property type. Yep. Um, the other property types, while dealing with the cycle, also have secular lift, and we can talk about that. Okay. Um, right now, office is really struggling, and the capital markets have pulled back, and yep. most of what's going on in real estate is a capital market pullback. So, mm. but also retail, right? I mean, um, we've heard a few cases of malls, and you're from San Francisco, where, um, you know, the owner just says, we're out, we're done, like Westfield did out, out at that retail center, right? So just like um, Office is getting hit by technology change because Zoom and Teams let us work from home, 10 or 15 years ago, real estate got hit by e-commerce. That was a while ago. Since then, the tenants have figured it out. We've all figured out what formats work and don't work. And the formats that work have repriced and are really interesting to investors. Some of these malls are the ones that don't and are largely pushed out of the institutional portfolios and not really where the focus is. The focus is on things like industrial and multifamily that have a lot of lift right now that are pretty interesting. And you can use this period of turmoil to find good entry points and opportunity. All right. So for the areas or just broadly defined, you know, commercial real estate, given where rates have moved this year, how does that impact your businesses? Like on a residential side, nothing's trading. Nobody wants to sell their house. What's it like on the commercial side? Homes are not trading. That means more people are pushed and capped back in the rental market. Okay. So if you own rental properties, it's actually a pretty good time. Um, it's slowing because it's vulnerable to the cycle, but the outlook is good. And similarly for industrial, which is benefiting from e-commerce and it's benefiting from globalization. So what we really have is a capital markets correction. So prices are going down, balance sheets are restructuring. People, new loans are smaller than old loans. So people need recapitalization money. What we call GP led secondaries is one way to do it. It, to actually keep their assets. And they're desperate for that money because the difference is a goose egg. So there's a really good time to deploy capital into some of these interesting strategies. Really? Which puts uh, StepStone, I guess, in a good position, right? Or um, what, what do you do at StepStone? You offer uh, private investors access to markets that the public doesn't see or yes are, we, yeah. we design uh portfolios uh for institutional large institutional and high, private wealth clients um that are designed to improve the odds of meeting their specific portfolio goals and that's what i focus on particularly and then that includes taking advantage of market opportunities and then we also execute we help them find and vet transactions so where are you guys 
putting capital to work these days? Our favorite strategy right now is this GP-led, this recapitalization, where you've got an owner who needs to buy down his existing loan and is desperate for money to keep his asset. So um, that, that they will pay a lot for that transitional money and not everything's savable. So over time, a lot of, there will be motivated sales and distressed sales that are also going to be Are we seeing that yet? Uh, we're at the leading edge. Uh, we're definitely seeing in our book transactions that look like the immediate post-GFC period, which you know ended up yielding very attractive so, returns. So what are some... What are properties trading at today? Again, if that lipstick building trades today, what do you, what discount do you think that trades at? Commercial so, real estate on Third Avenue in Midtown. Every property is different. That's the, that's the tricky part of commercial real estate. Um, the property pricing indexes are down a little over 20%, um, and trading is down about 40%, so it's a little bit slower and not full price discovery. Office yeah, that, is that, completely different, okay. though. Office is what's really not trading, yep. and it's really broken. So you like, uh, where are you finding the distressed, what will look like distressed opportunities? I mean, you're not looking in office, I'm guessing, or Correct. do you, or yeah. will you if they say, hey, this is 70% off? Right now, we're not seeing that pricing is interesting enough because there's too much uncertainty. Employers and employees are in a big experiment on highwood work, and we don't know what that means for demand or for leases yet. So it is. So for early. office, it's just a falling knife that no one, almost no one's willing to catch right now. Institutional buyers are not going into office right now wow. in any numbers. I can't wait to see that. At some it, point, it's going to be a just a, I would think huge it. haircut. Yeah, and it's but what you're saying is, if I can go by the lipstick building, I have no idea what. Like at thirty cents on a dollar, it's got to be a great deal, right? Yeah, I mean, I would, at I some point, but I don't know what that number is. That's why I'm, I'm not in that business. It's the same <laughs> as any asset when right. there are no buyers, right? It's right. in free fall, and you've got to have the. I guess the courage or the yes. stupidity yes. to go in there and try and catch it. But what what you're saying, Margaret, is that um, you're, there's a shift in capital interest, right? They're more interested in multifamily. They're more interested in, I'm guessing, like server uh, warehouses. farms. Industrial warehouses, warehouses yeah. is a yeah. big part of it. Because there's a huge shift in how people are using space right now. Um, instead of working at the office, we're working from home, we're shopping from home, we're playing at home. So that creates more demand on the residential side. And then also the warehouses, you know, holds all the goods that come in for the shopping and are really winning on the deglobalization front, which like you said, server farms, data centers and whatnot are also big. So th there's sectors in the market that have really interesting fundamentals. And if you could use this moment to buy at a discount, it, you know, good opportunities ahead. Now, can I, but can I get a can I get capital to do that? Can I get a loan to do that? Will, a bank, um, will banks lend to me? So yes, banks are lending to their, their best customers. Um, you can also restructure your existing loans. And again, that's where this recap strategy comes in that we think is so interesting. Um, as I said, trading value is down 40%. It's not down 100%. And it's way higher than it was during the GFC period. So, so there is still movement. There is a lot of, um, especially if you're trying to sell office, it needs to be seller finance because there's no debt for office. No debt for office. Wow. Okay. Seller financed. Me, yeah, I don't like that. That's scary. <laughs> you know, I, uh, I want to sell you this thing so badly that I'm going to lend you the money to buy it from me. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I've seen that before in other businesses. Um, so, again, do you feel like, well, where do you feel like we are just in, it, I guess it's really by the asset class, right? I mean, it, like I was going to say, are we at the bottom here? But in certain sectors, we've already 
bottomed and are trading higher, but for office, maybe not there yet. For non-office, we're at the beginning of probably a two to three year restructuring period that should yield some very interesting, as I said, opportunities to help people restructure um, as we move through the business cycle and we come out the other side. You know, the, the motto now is stay alive till 25. Stay alive till 25. Um, <laughs> that's not true for office. And I think the office is more like, I alluded to retail was a 10 to 15 year correction. I think office is more like a 10 year because tenants have to figure out their demands there's long-term leases that need to yep. roll off, and it's going to take a while. Wow. Let's talk quickly about San Francisco. That's where you live. Paul and I, I think, both love the love city. Love I think it. it's beautiful. I love the Humphrey and Slocum ice cream place. Mm-hmm. I'm a deadhead, so I like to go around and hate Ashbury, you know, and check out the scene there. Um, I never really hung out in the industrial, like, commercial center very much, but apparently it's dead. What, what do you think? Is it is the, you know, um, are, are the death... Uh, um, stories about San Francisco overblown, overwritten? The Bay Area is the center to the biggest and most important tech ecosystems in the world. I am not going to bet against San Francisco at all, and it's a fabulous place to live. Still, you still enjoy living there. Yes, and remember, we don't all live, we don't live downtown. That's yep, part of the problem. Right. Office key card use says, um, use office use in New York is 50%. Office use in San Francisco is 45%. You just feel it because... Yep. There's, um, it's more concentrated, and the tourism is not back there. And here you have integrated uses, so it feels lively. Yep. When I hear tourism isn't back, that makes me want to go to that place. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. It's, uh, I don't know. I love it. And I just, I always tell people that are coming from Europe, hey, I've got, I'm going to be here in the States for three or four weeks. Where do I go? I say, one stop has to be San Francisco. Yeah. Do your Vegas, do your New York, but one stop has to be San Francisco. Uh, I'm just not sure if you can do that, say that anymore, but I still think that's the case. So uh, don't bet against the Bay Area. Thank you very much. Margaret McKnight, uh, she's a partner and head of real estate portfolio solutions. The company's name is Stepstone Group. It is a NASDAQ traded company. S-T-E-P is the ticker. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. 
All right, Matt, I'm taking my year-to-date gains. I'm going to the two-year treasury. I'm giving them my money at the window. I'm going to get 5.04%. That's not bad. You've got a lot of reinvestment risk ahead. That's not good then. All right, well, let's talk to somebody who does this stuff for a living. Ted Oakley, founder and managing partner at Oxbow Advisors, joining us live in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Usually you're based, where are you based down in Texas? Austin. Austin, okay, all right. So you didn't, your school, you're a Texas tech guy. You didn't fire your coach and guarantee him $76 million, did you? We did not. We okay. don't have that kind of money. Okay, very good. Just <laughs> want to see what's going on down there in Texas. Everything's bigger in Texas. I know. I get that. All right, Ted. Here again, I can be just fine in my two-year treasury at five point zero four percent. Matt says I have reinvestment risk. What are you guys doing these days? Well, we own a lot of that. Actually, we we have probably the highest uh, level of treasuries we've had since two thousand. Really? Yeah, we're very high in the treasuries. We have a lot of the floating rate treasury, which is even shorter. It's based on a ninety-day reset every Monday, and it's about five and a half. And then, you know, we own some one-year, two-year. We own some long paper, but uh, right now, that's that's where we have a lot of liquidity stashed. What's do you, do you have? What are you looking for to maybe get more exposure to the equity markets? Is it a valuation thing? Is it an earnings thing? Is it a Federal Reserve thing? What What is the catalyst that you guys are looking for? You know, most of the companies we look at are guiding somewhat lower, okay. you know, in the, in the coming quarters. We don't look at whether they beat or not because that's a game they all play, but we look <laughs> at the guidance on it. And the guidance uh, is going down for a lot of companies. And a lot of companies are just not cheap enough for us. We have companies we like. Now, we've been buying some of the uh, consumer staples because they've gone back down to a level that we liked okay. But uh, we've been, you know, we still own legacy growth companies, but we cut back on them quite a bit. So does that mean you're out of the market for the foreseeable future in terms of equities? No, Matt. It means that we're about half in. Okay. You can look <laughs> at it that way, I suppose. But, uh, you know, we have we really feel like that we'll have a better spot here in the next two or three quarters than we have right now we really see weakness coming we see it a lot in a lot of industries and across the country we see transportation retail trucking so many things are starting to weaken now and so for us we just don't think it's over yet so that's why we're a bit cautious so do you have a, a recession built into your forecast here well, you could have. I think it'll go so slow that it will feel like one at okay. least. You know, if yep. you go to zero growth, Paul, or one, you know, that will probably feel like a recession to some people because some industries will be very, very slow. And then you have to deal with this debt situation with the Fed, too. I think that's a problem. Ah, that's your, right up your belly. Yeah, way. absolutely. I mean, um, do you see any kind of fiscal discipline coming to this government anytime soon? I don't. Uh, I haven't seen it before. Now, maybe they come around, but, it, you know, it takes both sides of the, of the aisle to do it. And I, Does it I matter to you? Do you are well, you concerned when you look at the debts and deficit? Or I mean, Some people say we've been doing this since Reagan. We can keep doing it. It matters to me in this respect. If you go back and look at countries where they get to a certain breaking point, and we're about three-quarters there, and people don't realize that the average debt that we're paying right now is about 2.6% on all the federal debt. Well, guess what? 50% of it rolls over in two years at five. You're going to almost double it. And people, I don't think people realize what happens when you, when you get so much debt and then the monitor, you debase your monetary system. And I know it hasn't happened in the past, but now it's getting to a breaking point. You can follow it with countries over time and see what happens. 
On the equity side here, I know you mentioned um, look, looking for income. So oil and gas pipelines? We still have those. We, we, we rarely sell the oil and gas pipelines. They're, Why is they're, that? They're steady producers. Okay. They, they usually increase the income a little bit each year. If you wanted something to uh, compete with your real estate on a private basis, you would own the oil and gas pipeline because uh, half of them file on a K-1, just like real estate, so you don't have any current income tax on it. And secondly, they all pay between seven and nine, so you get a real Seven and nice nine percent dividend yield. Yeah. And right. they're not building pipelines anymore, are they? You hit the nail on the head. It's like it's like I tell people be like trying to get an easement for a for a railroad track. Right. You think about that today. You can't do that, and then you have environmental concerns, and it's hard to get these days. Well, I tell people when I was pitching to billboard companies back in the day, I said they're not making any more billboards. Can't get them up. So yeah. You gotta pop by the ones that are out there. And how's that business going? Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. You nice. can't you can't click through a billboard ad. You know. That's true. You can't you, block it. That's true. It, it, what about um, other real estate plays? For example, in Texas, I know there are a lot of big data centers. There's a lot of big factory, uh, sorry, big warehouse uh, businesses. Um, you got a lot of land down there, right? So there's even green energy is a huge industry in Texas, despite what we may all think yeah. about Texans' attitudes towards that. Well, that's true, but what we see, and I'm, I'm involved quite a quite heavily in a community bank, and so I see a lot of what's going on, on on the real estate side. And what we're seeing, Matt, is really we're starting to see even some industrial properties uh, come up for lease because they're not full. And now we're starting to see some commercial buildings actually go back to the banks. I mean, they're Ooh. giving the keys back. And yep. so we're... It's starting to show its it's starting to show its wear and tear there too. So do you guys at the bank you're involved with, do you have commercial real estate exposure? Very, very little. Fortunate. Okay. But um, so are your customers I mean, what what are you seeing at that regional bank level? Are they is there loan demand there at these interest rates? You know, in most community banks, Paul, uh, the loan demand is about steady. Okay. It, it really is not going up or down. All the banks are fighting to try to get the loans and so why you've got an eight and a half percent prime they're having to come in at six and a half or six and three quarters and, and to get that business that's what we're seeing there i think they're really con the banks are really concerned about it because most of them have situations where they have bond portfolios that are not all that great and then the other problem is they can't get a lot of new you know cni new business loans it's, that's hard for them so broadly defined i mean texas is so big you can't talk about the state but i mean what, what are some of the driving forces down there for the, the economy? Is it still just people or people and businesses are coming into the state because of maybe fa favorable tax situation, good labor force? Is that still the story there? Well, that's what we see now uh, at Oxbow. We do business in 40 states, so yep. we do business all over the country. But in Texas, we have a lot of new business that came in just from people that moved from other states at yep. high tax states. They just got tired of what was going on in some of their states. On the business side, poor oil and gas is still a big business in yep. Texas, but we have a lot of manufacturing, we have a lot of tech, we have a lot of things that happen in the state. I'm, you know, the state's a, it's still a place where you can go and sort of be a bit of a maverick. Yep. And I yep. think I think that's why people come there. Yeah, I'm telling you, man. They like freedom. I know exactly. It's in and short supply. Low taxes, <laughs> low taxes man. Yeah. Getting crushed here. Tell me about Tell it. Tell me about it. All right. So, what's your over the next twelve months, Ted? What do you do? You think you guys will get more in, into the equity market, increase your exposure? What do you think you'll be making some changes to your portfolio over the next twelve months? What do you anticipate? 
it would not surprise me to see us at least get a lot more. If we have a break in the market that we feel like things are cheap enough, you'll see us get almost fully invested. We'll find companies. We usually, we'll, we, we, we really run about 200, 250 companies that we would want to own that we look at quite a bit. Most of those are not hitting the screens we want to, to buy right now. And is that a valuation screen primarily? That's a valuation screen. Yep. We like companies with, we find in the long run, you need to own companies that don't have a lot of debt. I mean, you know, debt really for us is, is not working in the long run for companies. And we just feel like we'll get a shot at better valuations than we have right now. What's your latest book? Stay Rich with a Balanced Portfolio? Right. Uh -huh. So what am I doing there? Am I just risk reward, making sure I don't get too far, too skewed one way or the other? You know, one of the things I've noticed really since the pandemic particularly is that people are really, they're, they're all in one, one or two things. Like maybe they go all into, into cryptocurrency, yep. all into real estate, all into the Magnificent Seven, all in, in something, you know, and they don't have any balance. And one of the things I've found, and I've, I've really interviewed in my life quite a few billionaires, and one of the things I've noticed about them is they usually have balance. You might not think it, but mm -hmm. they have quite a bit of balance, have quite a bit of liquidity. And I see people today that are sort of complacent because nothing real bad's happened so yep. far. And so they're all chock full of one thing. And I just <laughs> think that's not a good way to go. If you want to, I'll just give you a note. What? If you took a million dollar person in 1900, they'd be a billion today. Yep, there you go. I can do that math. Ted Oakley, thank you so much for joining us. Ted Oakley, he's a founder and managing partner at Oxbow Advisors. We should get him on the phone, but he's up here in the Big Apple today, so we got him in the studio. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.